This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Ah, hello everyone. It is literati, glitterati time. Hello. We're going to learn all about books and stories this week. It's lovely to have you. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Mel Fulton and I am broadcasting to you live from Stolen Land, from the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. A shout out to Bunjil, the great creative spirit. Today on Literati Glitterati, I'm taking a look at two books, both published by text, uh, both explorations of the self of memory, of coming of age as a woman in a man's world, both consumed by this question, how did I become the person that I am? Libby Angel's Where I Slept and Helen Elliott's Eleven Letters to You. Um, I'm looking at these two books together because I feel like they work as lovely companion pieces to each other in a way that's a bit difficult to articulate. Uh, Both are set in Melbourne, Both are vivid and exacting with sensory memory, although they're not quite precise. They're sort of interested in the mythological self, the imaginative self, and the possibilities of who we can become. Um, I reckon they fit on the bookshelf alongside Edwina Preston's book, Bad Art Mother, which was shortlisted for the Stella Prize this year. Uh, Helen Garner's early work, perhaps Monkey Grip, perhaps Olivia Lang's work. It also got me thinking about that fantastic under-egg classic Sleepless Nights by Elizabeth Hardwick. But um, I'll be very curious to see what these women cite as their inspirations and literary counterparts. Triple R. I am absolutely delighted to introduce my first book to you for this week. It is by Libby Angel and it's entitled Where I Slept. It's a work of autobiographical fiction and a portrait of life on the fringes, peppered with dark humour, despair and moments of elation. The book is told in short vignettes and follows Libby's travails from a seedy old boarding house in regional Victoria to the bohemian sharehouses and squats of Melbourne and later its streets. Where I Slept is the story of a young woman's search for a life of artistic integrity and self-actualisation in the 90s in Melbourne and we are delighted to welcome Libby to the show. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Mel. It's our absolute pleasure and it was my absolute pleasure to read this wonderful book. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing it? Wow. So it was... A very long process and I, I sort of – I realise now I sort of write in relays so I wrote and researched um, basically a full draft and then I put it away and then I finished um, The Trapeze Act, my first novel, and then I came back to where I slept um, it was it 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 is autofiction but it's basically a novel in the sense that the writing takes precedence over the um reliability i guess and there's also the fact that it's a quite an unreliable narrator and i guess it comes from more the um formal concerns of uh the novel and using a certain time and place and experiences as material 
rather than sort of going, oh, this happened to me, I'm going to write a story about it. So I, I read a lot of um, books by women, Australian women writers, who um, had experiences of um, unsettledness, uh, itinerancy and so on, such as uh, Eve Langley, The Pea Pickers, and Kylie Tennant, who both wrote um, Depression-era novels about being um, women on the on the on the loose on the run. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, um, I noticed too um, off mic uh, just before you came into the studio. You were reading that fantastic uh, memoir from Patty Smith. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned the, that the work is autofiction, and I thought that that was a really good thing for us to dive into because it's um, it's a term that a lot of people haven't are not familiar with. Can you talk to us a little bit about? You mentioned before autofiction is is something that sort of lets the story be the thing over the objective. This is what happened. Truth. Do you want to? Yeah, sort of it's expand very on that different to autobiography, but it is a it's a kind of. Um, weird hybrid genre sort of term but saying that it it also has um you know a long history and um tradition so often I I you know I think about how this is autofiction and and how it isn't in the sense that um that that life um, is a kind of raw material. And actually I, I remember reading in um, Jean Genet's The Thief's Journal how he he talked about life as a sort of pretext. So it's almost like it's a the, – the book is like a collage constructed of memories. But as we all know, memory is pretty unreliable anyway. But then there's a, an, a kind of tradition of particularly um, women writing autofiction – um, Chris Krauss I'm thinking of and others who um, talk – it sort of was talked about for a long time as the, a confessional mode. Now, I don't, I don't think my book is necessarily confessional. I mean, there was also a lot of criticism of that term because it's like, well, what are we confessing? We haven't actually committed any crime here. Mm. It's just uh, um, reportage, I guess, of um, – but often they were quite um, – in, in relation to autofiction, quite distressing or, or confession in relation to the confessional, quite distressing, um, particularly um, women's experiences of patriarchy and um, sexual violence and or inequality and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Where I Slept is a book that centres a young woman. It's set in the 90s. It opens in a boarding house, which is sort of in regional Victoria. In my imagination, I I pictured Castlemaine because it's where I live and that's that's what I do. I always impose myself upon the books I read. And then it sort of ventures to Melbourne and your your young character is um, experimenting with, with being an artist and sort of on a quest to discover herself in that way. She does yoga, she's a dancer, she's playing the saxophone, she's sort of, um, you know, runs wild in the streets and graffitis things and gets up to all kinds of sort of mischief and creative endeavours. Um, and the story is told with this kind of um, uh, 
with incredible sort of brevity, I suppose, there are these, it's, it takes this sort of vignette form where usually a chapter is maybe a page and a half or, or something sort of quite short that leaves you with an image or an impression or a feeling of what, of what it might have been like for her. Um, I was wondering how you sort of stumbled on that format. Yeah, so that was, um, I think, quite deliberate. So I reckon I wrote... 200,000 words or something like I just wrote so much and I wanted I mean I like books that um sort of belie the the labor and the um vastness of the writing process I wanted it to be quite pared down and um yeah imagist I guess um and it's written in the present tense but you know the 90s was such a long time ago now so that's another thing it's sort of a contradiction in a in a way um it's it's immediate in the in its voice but it's not immediate it's it's sort of got that inevitable reflection of of having had so much time pass and I think you know memory replays in that way is a sort of imagist again I think of a a collage it's it was sort of like constructing a collage and I um, I moved a lot of the pieces around a lot to sort of see what made sense to me. I mean, it's funny too because writing's, you know, writing's linear in some ways, like it's one word, one letter after another, but I, I like to try and mess that up as much as possible. Yeah, I love... I love all of this that you're saying, you know, like this idea of sort of autofiction as being um, disruptive in a sense. It, it allows us to be um, confessional on the one hand, but confessional without, without confessing to a crime, confessional in terms of um, exposing or radically vulnerable or sort of able to... Um, to get to the bones of something and I think the vividness of that image-based, those short passages of writing, does a similar thing. Um, And it is set in the 90s but it is told like it's happening right now. So there's this constant sort of unfolding of um, what feels like a new city but something that is very familiar. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about, um, I mean, the experience of living, you know, of living in the 90s in Melbourne at that time, what it was like and what you were trying to capture? Yeah, well, at the time it felt like, um, yeah, a vastly growing metropolis, but if you compare it to Melbourne now, (laughs) you know, it was probably more like a big town. But certainly I think um, for me, I, you know, because I was young, I had all this anger and energy about um, advanced capitalism and corporate stuff that was really beginning to um, take over and I didn't really have the sophistication to respond to that in any kind of um, political way that was constructive other than, other than, as you said, to sort of graffiti and um, make art but not within the structures of um, culture just to 
I guess that's why, you know, that we think of the 90s as the um, do-it-yourself sort of um, fashion that or imperative that became quite urgent as um, advanced capitalism took over our public spaces and um, relationships and so on. So I've, I felt like there was that kind of awareness, but there was also a lot of... Um, lethargy due to the <laughs> heroin that was about and um, I often felt like I was sort of in a forest of zombies or some kind of zombie film or something because it was just everywhere. Yeah, there's this um, fantastic kind of quality to the writing that, that captures um, that that rest, restlessness and that sort of desire to express oneself and to be there and to be present and also that kind of extraordinary extraordinary lethargy and the drug culture and the sort of um, the space between, you know, um, I think this is, you know, a reasonably universal young people conundrum of like the sort of space between the um, the politics and the and the dream and the... Yeah, exactly. physical every day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You just don't – I mean, I just didn't have the patience to kind of go and look for a grant or infiltrate some company or um, theatre company. Or, or I was just so impatient and um, it was kind of good in a way. Like we were always doing something, um, you know. We didn't wait for approval or to be admitted into kind of any – halls of <laughs> whatever it was just like oh let's let's do this today or let's you know let's go and paint something or let's make a film or let's go on onto the street and play some mediocre music <laughs> yeah I mean there's a great sense of sort of making it up as you go or a sense of playfulness and it makes for some really wonderful like this great levity in the book you know there's there's this wonderful scene where your character um you know she sort of falls in love with uh yoga practice and is um asked to fill in as the teacher while her instructor is away and she um you know she she's kind of cobbles herself together by picking up clothes at the op shop because it's cheaper that way than to than to than to do the laundry and one day she wears a pair of yoga pants from the lost property and the person in her class identifies those pants as being hers like there's these great kind of you know awkward funny very vivid moments um that are painted throughout that do great strides in terms of like letting us know who this person is and and what motivates them and also that they're kind of quite unreliable in telling their own story yeah, like yeah. you know you feel their story but you're like what is what is happening you know like if this were told from a different perspective what would we be seeing um and I loved that about it it added another layer which really interested me um something that we do get a really strong sense of is that it was it was really difficult, particularly as a woman at that time, to be creative and to be taken seriously. And I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that a little bit. Oh wow. <laughs> Where do I Go start? On. Yeah, give it a crack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um gosh, that's such a complicated thing, you know. Um I mean, it's hard to know also what my own kind of 
issues were and what what was real. I mean, again, I think that's just part of being really young is that you kind of lack a bit of insight. But I had enough insight to see that how much easier things were for men, if only because they had so much more, um, I was going to say balls. <laughs> well, they, I mean, they do have those. Bravaduccio or, or mm. whatever, you know, like they just had, they seemed to me to have a lot more confidence. I don't think that's universally true, but, um, yeah, but there were, you know, there were also men who, or you know, you could hardly even call them men, like boys who were very supportive and and kind of really liked women who were quite punk and um, a bit irreverent, you know. Yeah. I mean, do you keep in touch with any of these people? I know that they are, they're both real and not real, but I, I like to imagine that they're Yeah, they're inspired. not real, but mm. I do... Yeah, most of them are sort of... Made up, you know, like I might take one or two details from a person, but I mean, I think that's another thing about fiction. They they were all really reflections of my own psychology, such as it is. But I do have some friends from that time. Um, yeah, it's it's difficult because people have very different ideas about what that time was and some people don't really want to think about it too much. Yeah. You know? Libby, can you tell us, I suppose, the book ends with your character sort of getting on a getting on a plane or deciding to embark on a journey to go to Europe. It ends, you know, and it got me thinking about the, the sort of violence of books, you know, they just drop you at the end yeah. and this is what happens. And I, I was wondering, I know this book is both real and imagined, but if you could talk to us a little bit about what happens after that, you know, like what is this person's next journey? What happened to me or what happened well, to what do you, um, the character? Yeah, what do you feel happened to the character? Um, hmm, I guess I haven't <laughs> really thought that far. Um Probably, I guess it's it's uh, it's sort of self propulsive in the sense that you know she starts in this small town and then goes to the city, but then she knows that city and the city becomes a kind of town. So I guess it's sort of like a, a will to always be a little bit out of one's depth and um, searching for whatever the city is. And I think that's actually really changed. I mean, I thought about that a lot um, writing this book. Is that because of the pandemic and various other things, um, I think the city as a mecca, or maybe it's also just my personal kind of thing, but I don't think it necessarily represents what it used to. But there used to be this idea, oh, you know, you had to be in the city to be any kind of artist or um, to be sort of aware of what was happening in the world. You really... It's like, it's a kind of a, a sort of search for... Um, cosmopolitanism and um, um, the metropolis, I guess, like urbane, urbaneness, the search for the city and to know the city and what it is and to be part of it. 
Yeah, and I suppose there's a sense for your character as well of, of sort of extending themselves beyond, you know, provincial Australia or provincial Melbourne to be somewhere yeah. where art really happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I think that's also changed and um, it's not so much the case anymore that, I mean, I don't really know because I'm not 25 anymore, but it's like... I'm not sure. I don't know. I I sort of am quite resistant now to this um, thinking that Europe or New York or whatever is the centre of things. And I think it is in itself quite a kind of colonial attitude that we feel like, oh, we have to go back to London or New York or some place like that in order to... to, um, to engage in any meaningful kind of um, art rhetoric or, or conversation. Yeah, well, something that I definitely took from the book um, is that sense of, um, you know, in in youth, um, you're sort of always looking outward for inspiration and trying to find it and you think it's just beyond you and you need to travel that little bit further or reach a little bit harder yeah. or have these experiences. But then in the act of sort of writing and reflecting and going inside, that's where you, that's where you make the real stuff, you know? Like yeah, that's that, right, yeah. But yeah. I still, you know, I'm an, I am an advocate of travel <laughs> and of cities in general. So, yeah. So, I, yeah. I think it's a really great thing to do. I was hoping maybe um, as a final question in our interview, you could talk a little bit about the role of music in your writing practice. Right. Well, that's um, a multi-leveled thing really because there's the rhythm and poetry is important to me. Um, And I I started writing poetry um, before I wrote fiction. So... To me, it's a musical process, um, even to the point where I like the sound of the tapping of the <laughs> keyboard. If I'm sort of in a flow or whatever, or even if, even not, even if it's sort of staccato, and have, I, li- I like the way it reflects my mood. I guess I, I kind of dabbled around with keyboards for a while. I did. I did actually have a saxophone for a while, and um, I tend to gravitate a lot towards musicians. Um, I really like the culture, band culture, I like live music um, and I like I like the fact that it sort of um, bypasses words in, in some ways. Um, yeah, I haven't actually read that much about music. There's that, what is that quote? It's like dancing about architecture but, you know, Shelley um, Lassica actually does that. She's a contemporary dancer. <laughs> she works with architecture. So I, I don't think it's impossible to to write about music, but it's certainly not, you know, it's not a review or a theoretical. It's just my experience of um, going to bands and hanging out with musicians, really. Yeah, well, I imagine as a writer there's a certain thrill in existing at the end, like at the end of language, you know, um, which is, to me, that's sort of what music is. Um Thank you so much for joining us on Triple R today, Libby. Um, 
Libby Angel, you can catch her in conversation at the Castlemaine Art Museum on the 24th of June. Um, that's an event that's being put on by Northern Books, so you can give that a little Google if you like. Uh, Where I Slept is out now through text. Do pick up a copy of it. It's a delightful book. Um, and stick around because coming up after this little musical interlude, we will be interviewing Helen Elliott about her wonderful book, 11 Letters to You. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me and thanks for being a sensitive... Rita, Mel, that's great. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. I am absolutely delighted to introduce our second guest to the show this week, Helen Elliott, uh, author of this wonderful new book called 11 Letters to You. It's an original and intimate account of growing up in the suburbs of Melbourne in the 50s and 60s and Helen was just sharing with me off air that she has invented really an entirely new format of telling this wonderful story. The book is presented as 11 letters to neighbours, friends, teachers, bosses, various figures that have sort of shaped the way that she is and how she lives. Um, And we are delighted to have her on the show. Welcome, Helen. Thank you, Mel. It's wonderful to be here. Helen, tell us. You've invented this new form. How did you do it and why? Why did you decide to go with the format of, of letters for this memoir? I think it's very hard when you write. You have to you sit down. I've been a, a literary journalist for forever. I'm probably the oldest living first writer in Australia, first author at the moment. But I how did I I started I can never find the right voice. You know how right people who are trying to write say, I, I need to find the voice. And the voice I wanted was intimate and loving. I think love is the active word in my book. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's very reverent and it, it's, it's a heartwarming book to read. It fills your cup. And I think that by addressing these people, these 11 people, so personally in that letter form, we get to know you so so quickly, you know, um, and we get to know your extraordinary eye for detail and, and the things that you admire and also the things that you're challenged by. Now, these letters are addressed to people who were sort of formative for you when you were, when you were growing up. Can you tell us about... Um, but it feels a little bit like it's taken, it's taken all of this time to kind of to arrive at those, at those letters and at that sentiment. Can you talk to us a little bit about the decision to sort of write and release the book now? Well, it just... Um, I really do... I'm a great fan of George Eliot and, you know, at the, one of my... Um, the quotations at the beginning is... She said, the world is better for you and I because of all the wonderful people. She didn't say wonderful. They didn't use wonderful then. But all the people who lie in invisible tombs, uncelebrated. There are statues. There are famous people. But really the world gets by on ordinary kindness, ordinary goodness, ordinary love. And when I was growing up, I was born in 47, and these letters, they just I just go to when I was 22. So it's the first 22 years of of my life growing up in an outer suburb, Baronia, which was extremely beautiful then. And um, I wanted to really honour them because it's not just our parents who make us, it's everybody we meet. And the kindness and love that I was shown from them, 
Oh, really, my parents also. I think they were both. They both had a genius for loving. They were both quite damaged, but they really were extraordinarily loving to both my brother Clive and myself. And um, I think that made me able to take in other people. I don't know, but I have a very and a good eye for well, good memory, which is also a curse. Good memory is a great curse because you you can't forget things. Perhaps you wanted to, but it just came. I just trying to find that voice to honour them was. I've never quite been able to do it because as a journalist, as a and I've I've always made my made money um, as a literary journalist, as a columnist, and you have to. That's a performative voice. And finding the right voice is very difficult. I, in fact, I just read something, it might have been the TLS or somewhere, V.S. Naipaul said that he used to, he'd sit down to write a novel and discover that there was this artificial voice, but he just wrote through it. And finally, at the third try, that'd be the real voice. And so if I found I had them, I thought, oh, I'll just pretend, I'll just pretend that they're still alive, these very dead people, most two of them are alive, there were nine women, by the way, and two men. And I thought I'll just write letters to them and tell them how much I honour them and love them. How wonderful. And you do that, um, as you said, with such an extraordinary memory and such a wonderful eye for detail. You know, you get a sense of, of these women whose, whose kitchen floors absolutely gleamed and the way <laughs> other women lacquered their hair and the extraordinary excitement of Jean Shrimpton wearing um, a mini skirt to the races in 1964. There are all of these wonderful sparkling details and, and minute ones. And I wanted to talk to you about this this wonderful memory that you have and, and how you managed to keep hold all of this with you. Well, I don't have any... Everybody thinks I have photos or diaries. I don't keep diaries. I'm too impatient and I, it's all in my head. I'm very visual, I guess. One of, one of my chapters is about the art teacher, Miss McGibbon, who obviously who liked me a lot, obviously because of my visual... I could turn what I saw into words. So I'm, vis, I'm visual but I also have language so because I read so much all I did was read I spent the first 22 years of my life looking at things and reading doing nothing else I was quite boring so I wasn't distracted you know I wasn't drinking or having sex or (laughs) doing drugs I did nothing you know (laughs) yeah there's some fantastic moments in the book where you describe sort of getting in trouble at school because you're sitting at your desk with your book hidden underneath the desk still reading while in class and they banned me from that that was sixth grade they banned me can you imagine these days that's how different it was it could have been the 18th century I think it was so different it certainly is a marvelous portrait of 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 a different Melbourne, you know, where, where Baronia is this exquisite sort of bountiful country town and um, uh, where, um, I mean, where the, the, the way that you were addressed as a young woman and as the way that you were grown and um, learnt to sort of contain yourself as a young woman was extraordinarily different. I was, I was wondering if you could share... Um, Maybe some in, uh, maybe some insights into sort of that t- into that time and how, and how we've changed and how you feel this Melbourne has sort of stayed the same as well. Well, I think you're from Sydney, aren't you? So I don't know whether it was. Aren't you from Sydney? No. No. Um, 
I thought you were from Sydney. Sorry. No, that's okay. Um, well, it's changed. I think it had changed more in my lifetime than it did in my mother's lifetime, for instance, or my father's. My father was born in 1908, my mother in 1911. But I, um, it has changed irrevocably, really. I don't recognise it when I come in on the... Well, I haven't used trains for a long time, but I, I couldn't find my way around when I came in on the train you know, last time because you have to go underground. And mm. I'd come in and I'd recognise... Because you forget the weight of population. There are only, what, I don't know how many people in Melbourne, but there are only five or six million people in Australia when I was growing up, mm. very different from now, and we're all white. Um, but also from... Um, I've always been a feminist. I think like Isabel Allende, I was a feminist before I had words. And um, it was very hard being a girl... And that's changed. That's changed. A girl was nothing but really, I thought, eventually, just bosoms walking down the street. Mm. Um, but that men know, you know, the men know better now. They might still think it, mm. <laughs> but they don't. They know that you don't, you know, you, you can't do that. You can't behave like that. People behave so differently. It's phenomenal. Mm. You know, a girl had, well, a girl like me from a working class family, upper working class family, you, the gradations, the gradations are very, very uh, infinite, but I'm very interested in class. This, this is a book about class as much as anything else. And in fact, I, I have to say I've had emails from people who've never read a book in their life, but somehow or other heard that this book was about Baronia and they... They they don't buy books. They don't know where they have wept. Mm. So they brought it all back, and it's meant so much to them to give them validation. I really just I wanted to validate girl people of that people ordinary people. That's really honour them, honour ordinary people, and validate them. And the one person's still alive, and she's eighty six, Lois. And um, I think she she thinks I've made her immortal by putting her in black and white. Oh, yeah. so for <laughs> context, nice people, uh, Lois Lois was Helen Elliott's uh, colleague at the library at the Box Hill Library. Box Hill Library, yes. And she was she was twenty eight years old when young Helen was uh, eighteen, I think seventeen, perhaps when oh, you started working yeah, at the library. 18, I was there for five years. And she has read she has read the book, has she, Helen? She has. She read it. I gave it to her. I gave her the chapter just in case she didn't want me to do it. She couldn't believe it because she's totally... Lois is a collection of, of atoms that are all modest and all humble. <laughs> how, so. how extraordinary. I feel like this book has particular currency now because, I mean, after COVID... Uh, well, COVID is continuing, but after COVID lockdowns and we were so sort of um, deprived of... Um, those sort of everyday humble interactions with our neighbours, with our teachers, with these sort of, you know, consequential, consequential, almost strangers who we build these happenstance relationships with. It, it was really wonderful to live in the world of, of these of these people who became so dear and so formative, but almost sort of spontaneously so or happenstance. You know, they lived next to you. You worked well, it was together. And people move on and the first two women in the book were unmarried women and they were nurses in the First World War. They were born in the 1870s in Orbost. And because I saw them every day, because they paid attention to me, 
they became intimately part of me. They're in, I'm sure they're in my DNA or whatever it is, epi, epigenetically. I'm <laughs> sort of, you know, a person born in Orbost in the 1870s because I listened to them and I talked to them, I remember them, they influenced me. So I had all these people making me, making up, developing this one very active, energetic, wild, you know, little girl who ran around in the 1950s. And Helen, you have four granddaughters of I your do. own now, is that right? Yes, and they're very funny. They think this is a joke. Oh. They, well, they, they, they're very proud and they're very happy, but they sort of send me up rather nicely and put their hands over their mouth whenever they see me and then say in surprise, exclamation, oh, gosh, are you Helen Elliott? Did you write a book? So they're very satirical. <laughs> oh, fantastic. As they, you know... As you want for our young people to be, I feel. Um, can you tell us a little bit? I mean, as I've said before, this is a book that is an ode to other people and you describe yourself as being sort of the hinges on which the book... Um, I'm doing something with my hands that yes, people can't see. Yes, Yes, exactly. <laughs> and yet we learn, we learn so much about you. I, I'm, I'm curious to know what you feel you sort of learnt about yourself or from this process of writing the book? Well, in fact, one of the reasons I didn't want it to be a memoir because I always think there's a huge amount of narcissism and ego in writing a memoir, but I'm, you know, and you pretend you're not like this, but of course you are. Any artist, any artist has, has to have, has to be narcissistic. You just, it goes with the thing and you have to have a considerable ego. But I, I thought, oh, not me. Um, I'm modest and humble, as my friend Lois was, but I'm really not. So this is a way in to talk about myself as much as anything else. And um, what did I learn about myself? I learned to accept myself, accept the very, very strong dueling aspects of myself. I'm um, extremely kind and I'm extremely generous, but I'll also... I have a terrible malicious streak <laughs> that comes from my father. I think it's mm. Irish. Um, it's very useful being a journalist because if you have malice, you can be funny. I'm sure comedians are malicious. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you know, everybody, nobody's perfect. We all strive to be nice, but we always, well, not to be nice, but we strive, I strive for that, that very, you know, 18th century idea of virtue. I'd like to be, vir- I'd like to be virtuous. I'd like to be good all the time, but mm-hmm. I'm not. And um, so I, reading these, I looked at myself and um, hoped that I, I could forgive myself because some of these people, I didn't go back and thank them enough, yes. you know, I, and because they're not alive now, but... Um, well, I feel like you've certainly thanked them with this extraordinary book. Uh, it's called 11 Letters to You. It's by Helen Elliott. It's out now for, um, through text and you should absolutely read it. Thank you, Helen, so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Mel. Oh. Lovely interviewer. Absolute pleasure. Um, and thank you very much also to Libby Angel who joined us earlier on the show. Uh, her book, Where I Slept, is also out now through text. My name is Mel Fulton. You've been listening to Literati Glitterati. And on the show next week, I will be interviewing the wonderful Sanya Rashti. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. 
To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.